Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. The growing use of continuous EEG to monitor patients following acute brain injury has significantly increased the number of acute symptomatic seizure diagnoses and consequently the use of anti-seizure medication. But only a fraction of these patients continue to have seizures after hospital discharge. In this episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing acute symptomatic seizures and the short and long-term management of these patients. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Vineet Punia join me for today's conversation. Dr. Punia is an epileptologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute's Charles Shore Epilepsy Center. Vineet, welcome to Neuropathways. Thanks, Dr. Stevens. Uh, thanks for inviting me for this podcast. So I still cover the inpatient service uh, occasionally on the consult service, and, you know, quite often we'll see patients that have had seizures. And I'll usually ask the medical students and the residents, you know, what's our individual lifetime risk of a seizure? And I'll see what they have to say, and they'll guess, you know, 1%, 2%, those types of things. And I tell them, and you can correct me because you're the expert, but but I tell them that uh, an individual's lifetime risk of a seizure is actually around 10%, which I think is always... Uh, shocking to everybody. And, you know, if there's 10 of us standing there, it means one of us is going to have a seizure. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why we that could happen or those types of things. But is the number accurate? Am I out to lunch? Should I tell them something else? No, uh, you are exactly correct. The lifetime risk of at least one seizure is around 10% in the general population. The 1% risk that is often quoted is about epilepsy. The risk of developing epilepsy mm-hmm. is 1%. And that highlights the common prevalence, so to say, of acute symptomatic seizure because that gap is filled by acute symptomatic seizure from the 1% to 10%. The 9% extra risk is because of these acute symptomatic seizures. Yeah, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with patients that have had multiple seizures and they go, well, I have seizures, but I don't have epilepsy, right? Then we have to have the discussion in turn, and maybe we should just have that now as a baseline as we go in. Why don't you just tell us the difference between somebody that has a seizure and somebody that has epilepsy? What's the difference? This is always a a great question. And and as you mentioned, there are always patients who uh, do end up confusing seizures and and having multiple seizures with epilepsy and and the terminology, and especially epilepsy still, unfortunately, has uh, some taboo attached to it. So people would rather have seizures or recurrent seizure, seizure disorder, rather than being labeled as epilepsy. So the the primary difference is that seizure is basically a single event, single episode of a symptom or or a sign that the patient experiences because of abnormal excessive firing of the electrical activity of the brain. So that's a single seizure. But when the brain gets this ability to produce spontaneous and recurrent seizure over time, that's when somebody is diagnosed with having epilepsy. So essentially, seizure is kind of a symptom of a much broader disease, which is epilepsy. However, just having a single seizure or even multiple seizure at times does not mean that the person has developed epilepsy. And that is in the scenarios of this acute symptomatic seizure, because these seizures occur in acute setting of uh, insult to the brain, 
of some kind and are a symptom of the acute insult, this doesn't necessarily mean that the brain has developed an inherent ability to produce spontaneous seizures. So these seizures, acute symptomatic, are just symptoms of the underlying disease or injury. So that is the primary difference between the acute symptomatic seizure, individual seizure, multiple seizure, and then epilepsy. So I know in the intro we talked a little bit about acute brain injury, uh, and you can certainly expound on that. But, you know, if we're in the hospital and we just go into the intensive care unit and we have a lot of sick patients in there, uh, let's say there's 10 patients in there. If we hooked up an EEG to these patients, how many of them would be having some abnormal electrical activity? So normal electrical activity that can be labeled as seizure, depending on if it's a medical ICU or neuro ICU, the, the prevalence or frequency of finding these could be anywhere from 10%, 20%, or even higher if it is really like traumatic brain injury unit and, and, and things like that. So if it's a medical ICU, the, the figure ranges around 10 to 15%. If it's patients with neurological uh, in neurological ICU with neurological injuries, it's anywhere from 15 to 20 to 25%. So that's the common. So if we're concerned, uh, how do we monitor these patients? What do we do in these days to assess the seizures? Right. So nowadays, because of um, exponential improvement in technology of, of data storage and, and, and uh, long-term monitoring, uh, we have continuous EEG that, that we perform on these patients, uh, especially on the high-risk patient. Uh, if you have patient who has, let's say, even stroke, hemorrhage, and you expect next day for them to improve and, and start responding, but if, if they are not, that is a time where you should be concerned that these patients may be having non-convulsive or non-clinical seizure. And those patients, we should perform continuous EEG monitoring to detect this acute symptomatic seizure from the stroke or hemorrhage or, or TBI. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can help me say, I'm feeling very educated here today uh, from you. But, you know, the things that always confuse me are that we put a continuous EEG on a patient and we see a sharp wave or we see a pled. How do I know when I should start somebody on a medication? I mean, I know it's not as simple here or there, but... Um, you know, obviously, if they have a obvious electrical seizure, it's easier. But what about these other things, these sharp waves, these pleds? Sure. Um, very critical and important question. And we do not have uh, clear data from research so far, unfortunately, although we've known about the existence of these pleds for more than 50, 60 years now. But uh, what should help us make decision of whether uh, to start medication or, or not uh, depends on if these are PLEDs or what we call LPDs now, lateralized periodic discharges, uh, those definitely, those patients in the next 24 hours, we know that around 50% or 60% of them would have seizure if you continue to monitor them. So those are high-risk patients. So in, in those patients, even prophylactically treating with the anti-seizure medication may be of benefit. Uh, sharp waves do not, have, do not carry as high risk, but if let's say the patient has poor mental status, uh, has a cortical injury of, of some kind, which we know are at high risk of developing seizure. And in case, if you do not have the ability to continuously monitor them for a long period of, of time, depending on the availability of resources, it would be better to, to start these patients on medication to reduce the risk. However, the risk, again, to emphasize that LPDs or PLEDs is much higher compared to some other epileptiform discharges like shark wave or even the generalized periodic discharges of what we call periodic patterns and, and things like that. So you mentioned something that I'd like to delve into a little bit better. Is there a sweet spot for timing for continuous EEG? Is it 
two hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, and after that, you can feel pretty comfortable one way or the other. Is there a sweet spot? Uh, yes, there is. And there's a lot of uh, research, thankfully, at least done in, in this sphere uh, of critical care uh, monitoring. So uh, there is, in fact, a prognostic model uh, called two helps to be. And, and uh, what it, it, it does is, depending on the first one hour of EEG, it accounts for some clinical variables, like if you had a clinical seizure or a convulsive seizure, that is, is a high risk. If uh, they have what we call highly epileptiform discharges like LPDs, if they have seizures or epileptiform activity, which is not 10 seconds, cannot be considered as a seizure seizure, but are considered like what we call birds, which is brief ictal rhythmic patterns or, or discharges. If the, if the patient has those kind of prognostic indicator of, of uh, impending seizure, those patients should be monitored for a longer period of time. But if, if those things are missing and the score is, let's say, two or, or three, then a 24-hour, 12 to 24-hour monitoring is sufficient. And if you do not see anything, then those patients are low risk. The risk of seizure in the next 24 hours is less than 5%. And you can safely take those patients off of monitoring. So 12 to 24 hours of monitoring and, and being guided by this scoring system is, is really helpful. Good. Well, you've educated me. I was unaware of the scoring system, so thank you. So patient has a traumatic brain injury, has a seizure in the hospital. How aggressively do we treat it? So I personally believe, we, again, it's not backed by strong and, and, and great um, clinical research, but based on our experience and, and some at least information we have, these should be aggressively treated to, to the point that we should try and, and get control on these non-convulsive acute symptomatic seizure, because at least the data we have suggests that these patients who have these seizures have poor outcome at time of discharge, have increased mortality if the number of hours of seizure is longer. So, and, and these seizures are often recurrent. So we should aggressively try in general as, as a rule of thumb, try to aggressively treat them. Now we may come to a point where we have tried three, four medications, and if let's say especially the patient has a good mental status, they're having what we call epilepsy partial discontinuous or very brief, small focal seizure, then you have to weigh or balance the cost and, and, and benefit of, we don't want to necessarily intubate them and, and things of, of that nature for, for just those minor seizure. But otherwise, a general rule of thumb is that we should aggressively treat them because they increase risk of poor outcome and in fact mortality. So one of the things I like about uh, our program here is that when I see these patients in the hospital, I can send them to what I believe is called the PASS clinic Correct. Uh, on discharge, the post-acute symptomatic seizure clinic that's run by the epilepsy folks. Won't you tell us a little bit about uh, that? Are you involved with that clinic? Yes. So uh, after my fellowship, which I did uh, at, at the clinic, I started working as an independent physician. I realized it was my area of clinical research, but these patients had very poor follow-up. And, and in fact, up to 90% of them used to remain on seizure medication for longer than a year or, or even more than that, based on, on the research that I had performed during my fellowship. So that was a big motivator for, for us to start this, this PASS clinic or post-acute symptomatic seizure clinic, which we began in 2017. So it, it's me, uh, along with Stephen Hentis, Jessica Fessler, and, and Zhang Ying, who primarily are, are the people who read the continuous EG monitoring. So we understand these patterns, the, the impact of these patterns or acute symptomatic seizure. So, so we made it a point that, that we will prefer that, that these physicians who are well-versed with continuous EG monitoring also follow these patients, uh, outpatient in the PASS clinic. Uh, the, the primary rubric or, or framework of the PASS clinic is 
that we want to see any patient who did not have history of epilepsy when they were admitted, were not on any anti-seizure medications, uh, underwent continuous EEG monitoring because there was a concern for acute symptomatic seizure, and now are being discharged on anti-seizure medication uh, after the hospitalization. So, so when we started the PASS clinic, we worked with our IT team and EPIC team to come up with this best practice advisory alert that pops up automatically for the discharging team if they're discharging a patient who was not on anti-seizure medication, underwent continuous EEG monitoring and is being discharged on, on medication. It suggests that this patient is a good candidate to be followed up in past clinic. And also we prefer to do like a EEG, like one hour EEG at least at the time when they come. So we look at the EEG, we see how they've been doing, and then we use that uh, clinic to decide how long the patient should be on medications and what are the risks of epilepsy development. Yeah, so if I can dig into that just a little bit more, 70% of these patients potentially don't need to be on uh, anti-seizure medication long-term. What are the types of things that you use to help differentiate who should stay on and who can come off? Uh, great question. So so the, the primary drivers of epilepsy development in general, because of course there are various etiologies that cause acute symptomatic seizure. So if the etiology was more of a systemic insult, let's say uh, electrolyte imbalance, like, like hypernatremia and, and, and hypoglycemia, those patients do not need to remain on medication even uh, at the time of discharge, they can be safely taken off. But if imagine, let's say somebody develops a stroke, hemorrhage or, or TBI, uh, the, the injury remains there, it, it, it becomes gliotic, we, we don't know uh, in, in a sense. In those patients, there is a gray zone of when to stop medication. And, and what we know at least that if there's a cortical involvement, uh, that increases the risk of epilepsy development or, or recurrent seizure afterwards. If uh, the, the severity of the, of the injury, so let's say for, for stroke, uh, higher the NHS stroke scale, the more is, is the risk. For, for hemorrhage, the more the volume of the hemorrhage. So if it's more than 10 milliliter, that's a high risk. Uh, so, so those kind of features of, of cortical involvement and, and severity of the injury. And if they had a convulsive acute symptomatic seizure, those patients, of course, are at a higher risk than somebody who had a stroke but didn't have a convulsive acute symptomatic seizure. So what I use in my clinic, there are a couple of prognostic models that have uh, been, been proposed and, and have been validated. So for, for stroke, there is a select model, S-E-L-E-C-T. Stands for severity, which is based on NHS stroke scale. Patient gets a score of 0 to 2. Uh, L stands for large artery atherosclerosis. So if there's evidence of the stroke being coming from large artery atherosclerosis, that's a higher risk. Then there's early seizure or acute convulsive seizures. If they happen in, in these patients, that increases the risk and the score goes up by three points. Then there is involvement of the MCA. If it's the MCA territory stroke, that increases the, the risk. And then the cortical involvement, so the select scores. I, I use that score to come up with an individualized kind of risk uh, assessment for the patient. Similarly, there's a CAVE score for hemorrhagic patients, which stands for cortical involvement, age is less than 65 years, that's a high risk, volume being more than 10 milliliter of, of uh, hemorrhage volume, and then early convulsive seizure. So, so these are, are the imaging and the clinical variables that we use. Now, my field of research or interest, I'm, I'm a pleptologist, all I do is EEG, looking at EEG. So when I started uh, in my fellowship and, and since then, we've been looking at the role of EEG, the acute EEG, the EEG that we do, the continuous EEG monitoring we, we do, uh, can that help us uh, determine the risk as, as well? Because as you see, the SCAVE score and SELECT score does not account uh, the EEG findings in, in there. And, and epilepsy is primarily a electrophysiological dysfunction, basically. 
Uh, and what we have found out that uh, we recently have published uh, several papers on this, that even after adjusting for all these clinical variables and neuroimaging variables, the patients who have acute symptomatic seizure or these LPDs or plus you mentioned, they have uh, 10 times increased risk of, of having seizure or developing seizures later on. So now I also account for what the EEG showed during the admission. Did they have these non-convulsive seizures or LPDs? And I, I consider these patients are being at higher risk than what select score, let's say CAVE score or, or, or those uh, things suggest. And lastly, we also perform, as I mentioned, as part of past clinic, we do an EEG for an hour at least before the patient sees us to see if there's still some sharp waves, some epileptiform discharges, because those patients we know at least from the traditional epilepsy literature, like when somebody has epilepsy and they've been seizure free for two or three years, you want to decide about stopping the medication. Uh, EEG showing epileptiform discharges means that the patient is at higher risk of uh, seizure recurrence if you stop the medication. So we do that EEG to also guide us at the time whether to stop medication or not. So if they show epileptiform discharges, then I'm, I'm more conservative. I keep them for, for a longer period of time. And, and lastly, uh, I, I really take into account the patient preference or, or family's preference as, as well, because it is still in, in a gray zone. The, the science is, is not settled yet, as in that we do not have great data. So um, I, I discuss at length the risks and benefits and, 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 and uh, what their individual risk of developing seizure is. To somebody, a 20%, 30% risk may not be too high, or to someone who is very risk averse, 10, 20% risk is too much, right? So I have this discussion, nuanced discussion with them, as in this is your risk. Uh, if the medication is not causing any side effect, if they're tolerating it okay, they're coming out of rehab, finally like getting back to normalcy after the stroke or hemorrhage. And if they don't want to sort of say rock the boat, uh, then we continue for a little lo longer, especially if they don't want to take that extra 10, 20% risk of, of having a clinical seizure. So all these things go into deciding like whether to stop medication or continue for something. No, I appreciate it. It's very good information. You know, the thing that's always a difficult discussion that I find with patients is if they want to drive. Uh, and, you know, if they've been on seizure medication and I've seen them post-hospital uh, stay and they haven't had any further events and they don't have any of these significant risk factors and they had some type of an event and they've been on it for six months and they haven't driven for six months, I always get anxious about, I'm going to stop their medicine at six months, and now I'm going to say drive. I wonder if I should have said, let's stop it at three months. Then you'd have three more months where they're not driving, where you'd feel better about what's going to happen. There's no easy answer to this, and obviously it's variable between the states, but um, how do you deal with this? I'll first tell how I deal with it, and, and then I'll go into uh, or, or, or plug my research or, or some interesting findings that we just uh, found. So, um, the way I deal with it is, is kind of what you said. So Ohio, thankfully, uh, in, in, in a sense, doesn't have very strict time limit. But that's where, where we practice, right? Uh, so they, they leave it to the discretion of, of, of physicians uh, a, a bit. So if the patient is, is low risk, rather than continuing for six months and then stopping it, as you said, because I definitely recommend them not to drive for a month or four to six weeks after stopping medication, because that's a high risk period. Nobody, nobody knows Despite our best effort of doing EEG and, and looking at these prognostic models, we cannot never be sure. So I recommend them not to dry after stopping the medication for four weeks. But if they're low, low risk, I tend to stop medication after three months. I say there will be a washout period and then you don't drive and, and come five to six month period, especially if, if their job really depends on it. And if they've recovered very well, then maybe by end of four, four and a half month, I may allow them to drive. 
uh, especially given that there are no strict time limits here in Ohio. But each state is is, is different, uh, and and then patients' preference, patients' uh, dependence on on livelihood for driving, and all other subtle things have to be considered as as well while making this this decision. And the the interesting research uh, finding I, I was initially alluding to was so so this past link that you referred to. Five of five of us came together. Five centers came together, uh, thanks to uh, American Epilepsy Society grant uh, to form a network of, of five centers which have PASS clinic. It's it's called Passion, which stands for Post Acute Symptomatic Seizure Investigation and Outcomes Network. Passion. So we are the leading side, and our other collaborators are uh, MGH, uh, Yale, Brown University, and and uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So any other research or anything else, uh, hot button items? I know there's always so many new medications that are out there, but anything else that we haven't covered that you feel is important? The important part is uh, the initial message of that these seizures should be aggressively treated. If, if you do not have resources for continuous EEG monitoring and you do a spot EEG or a short EEG and they have these LPDs or PEDs, as you mentioned, maybe these patients also should be treated with medication. And if you're discharging patients on anti-seizure medication in, in patients with acute brain injury, our medications have side effects. And if they, they need not be on, on them, it is important that the discharging team feel the responsibility to make some sort of follow-up with, with, uh, with a physician who will be comfortable assessing their need for long-term seizure medication and then discontinuing if, if, if not uh, need, needed. So that's my important message. Because otherwise, patients remain on medication. Nobody wants to touch them, especially uh, primary care physicians. And I understand the concern that what if the patient has has a seizure? But as, as you alluded to in the beginning, around twenty percent of them, fifteen to twenty percent of them, develop epilepsy, and and those also depends on what kind of underlying factors there are. So majority would not. So they should not be on medication for a long period of time. Yeah, the other commercial, I guess, I'll put out there because it. It affects the epileptologist, but the others looking after these patients. And that is, you know, there's a lot of new drugs that come out uh, and patients get put on these new medications that don't have a generic equivalent. And we're not going to get into a generic versus brand name discussion here. Uh, but, you know, the patient goes home and then they go to get their first refill and they go, well, I have, you know, a $600 bill and I can't afford that. What do I do now? And they're on this medication. It's it makes it complicated. Any thoughts about that? It, it definitely does. Uh, and, and then sometimes I get a call even when I have not seen the patient yet in my past clinic because they're struggling with, with, with this issue. Um, uh, generally, my experience has been that uh, our neurology colleagues in, on inpatient side have been cognizant about this and have tried to infect switch medications. The good news is one of the medications that used to be a really high burden or cost-wise recently became generic. I would not name the, the, the medication, but it recently became generic. And that uh, hopefully, and it's becoming available in pharmacies. So that should really help us out. But but that is always a conversation. In fact, I had a conversation today with, with a patient's daughter. They're struggling with one of the medication. So that's why even if um, there are certain medications that we really have to start or ended up starting, it, it is good to get these patients in touch with the, the specialists, the epilepsy physicians, who can make these changes while safely monitoring the patients. So that's why hooking them up with, with the specialists at the time of discharge if they are patients on, on these medications will be really helpful. 
Well, Vineet, this is great. I learned a lot. That's what I like most about doing these is that I always learn something new uh, from you and the other specialists that come come in. So thanks for joining us today and uh, best of luck and good luck with your abstract. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.